Good morning, Harvest. I know I'm not the first, and hopefully I won't be the last, but to all of our ladies, happy Mother's Day. Uh, This is one of my favorite uh, times of worship of the year on Mother's Day, just because God honors and exalts mothers in His Word, and I think it's a God-honoring thing when we do the same. And so we do that today. We see you and love you and value you and are thankful for you beyond what you can imagine. Uh, We are going to be uh, in a a, uh, passage. By the way, I thought those three young men just were awesome last week. Uh, Grant Ross and Evan Crenshaw and Luke Shoemaker, sure. Um, Hard for me to believe. Stood up here as 17, 18-year-olds and heralded the Word of God with such um, clarity and maturity. That was very encouraging. And uh, one comment Grant made was he said that, that he didn't think it was appropriate in his season of life to preach our next text in Ephesians, that the wives submit to their husbands, which was wise on his part. But I would echo that sentiment. I'm not mature enough or, uh, or don't think it's appropriate to do that on Mother's Day. So uh, we, we are going to dig in to building mature marriages over the next few weeks. But today, uh, we're going to just take a look at one verse, and then we're going to see that verse illumined through a faithful mother's life in a way that I hope is encouraging and inspiring uh, and refreshing to you mamas and to all of us who play a part um, in the celebration of moms, the partnering with moms for the raising of our children, and the celebrating of the faithfulness in moms. So if you would, stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, one verse out of Proverbs 31. Remember these words as we walk through our character study this morning. So Proverbs 31, one verse, verse 28 reads this way, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. It's the word of God for the people of God, and people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, we come to you on uh, this special Sabbath to be still and to worship and to acknowledge that you are a mighty God and a merciful God. And even as we just sang the song of of a mother, uh, of, of Mary, the beautiful words that she penned, we're reminded of your faithfulness in bringing forth uh, one who would bear our shame and who would take our place in judgment, that we might have life in your name, Lord Jesus. And so we thank you for uh, mothers. We thank you for all that they represent as they endeavor towards godliness and mothering. And we thank you for uh, that even their greatest efforts are wonderful, tangible shadows and the way they lay their lives down in sacrifice for their children of the ultimate sacrifice which you made for us. That comes clearly into focus this morning as we worship. So we love you, we praise you, and I pray that as I preach, I would decrease, Lord Jesus, you must increase. In your name I pray, amen. Well, <clears throat> I think that, and I hope that no one here would argue the critical significance, value, role of, uh, of mothers uh, in the church, in our families, certainly in homes, in our society. Um, j- just the way that God has wired a mother is, is such a unique thing. Uh, it's somehow embedded into their, uh, the DNA of, of their femininity, the way that their tenderness and compassion comes forth, the nurturing spirit with those motherly instincts. It's really an amazing thing to see, the way that God has built uh, even aspects of his divine character 
into the person of women as, they re, as they're image bearers of God in that way. And, and certainly a man can be tender and ought to be. <laughs> and a man can be nurturing, compassionate and ought to be. But, but a man cannot take the place of a woman in terms of exuding godly femininity and godly womanhood. And uh, we need that desperately in this day. And uh, the Bible exalts uh, women in that role, that uh, esteemed role they've been given. Matter of fact, I don't, I don't say that just, hey, it's Mother's Day, let's say something nice. That is really true throughout God's Word. It's not accidental or incidental. It's very clearly providential that throughout the Bible, we see a theme, a pattern, where God gives women not, not merely the uh, physical, biological role of, of bringing forth life, but the privilege of announcing new life in Christ. They're, they're the first messengers in the story of redemption all the way through. From Genesis 1 uh, or 3, when after the fall of man, God says, we're going to have redemption through the seed of woman who will come forth and crush the head of the serpent. We're wondering, where is this Messiah? Well, it's going to be Hannah who prophesies through Samuel uh, in that uh, amazing story of her barrenness and God using that to draw her near to him and bringing forth the child Samuel. And she prophesies kind of the pre-Magnificat, Magnificat. She prophesies through Samuel, first one to mention a Messiah to come. Um, she pronounces that. It's coming. Elizabeth, through, uh, uh, the, prophesying John the Baptist will be the forerunner to Christ. Mary, in the song we sang this morning, um, that, uh, that Christ is here. Um, and then... Wouldn't you know when Jesus is crucified, dead, buried, resurrected from the grave, who do you think gets the privilege of first seeing and announcing that he is risen? Surely Peter, right? I mean, he's the, he's the no, no. Well, then maybe John, the beloved disciple. Uh, if you guess any of the disciples, though, you're going to be wrong. It's Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. She's going to be the, the first herald of the risen king. And then the, the epistle that, that clarifies the gospel of Jesus Christ and our soteriology, our understanding of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Romans, carried by Phoebe, whose name means light or brightness, to the Mediterranean world. There's a, I mean, throughout Scripture, God does this. It's not an accident. But women are exalted to bring life and to bring the word of new life. And so I think it honors the Lord when we uh, exalt the ladies today. Some are mothers right in the thick of the weeds of mothering. And this, this message is mostly aimed towards you, although it's certainly uh, uh, peripherally aimed at, at all of us in some way, form or fashion. We all have a role to play in this narrative. But there are also those of you who have uh, paid your dues, so to say, uh, in the, the mothering race. Maybe you are in the next season of life, maybe even grandmothering. And, uh, and boy, do we ever need some Priscilla's among us who will be those matriarchs of the faith in our church family as she first was in the church of Ephesus where Timothy pastored. We'll be talking about him in a moment. And, uh, and then you have even, even those who long for a child, mothers-to-be, maybe some who long and have not uh, yet had that privilege. Maybe, uh, think of Hannah who I mentioned earlier. That was her story. For year after year, it says, and we don't know why God might use that in your life to draw you near. We just know his purposes are good. That for his glory and our joy, we trust him in that. And we know that some women, not, ever, not all women, are purposed or meant to biologically uh, be a mother. And yet, every Christ-following woman is meant to mature to spiritual motherhood. And some are able to endeavor towards that with their full um, uh, attention in ways that bless the body of Christ. So in that way, I want you to know something. If you're a, a woman here today, I just believe this is the heart of God throughout Scripture. You are seen. That, that's one of the things. If you study the women in the Bible, God always says, I see you. And I wonder about that. 
And I think one reason he does it is because most of the time, women kind of, they're, 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 they're always doing the hard work in the background. Yeah, that's, that's the, gee whiz, that's the definition of mothering, doing that which is critical in value and yet completely underappreciated, undervalued, and, and goes without celebration. That's mothering. So God's always saying, I see you, and I love you, and I highly exalt you. And so we do that today for all of you ladies. Let's just give the women a hand. Well, this verse that I've read out of Proverbs 31, famous verse, why would the children arise and call her blessed? Why would her husband praise her? Well, I, uh, I, I just really thought at the beginning of the week I was going to preach on Hannah. That's, that's what my plan of attack was. But the Lord brought forth another woman into the mix and uh, couldn't get her story out of my head. So finally, I came to grips with I'm supposed to preach Hannah and Eunice. And, uh, but by midweek, I, I just really believe that the Lord wants me to extrapolate a little bit more fully on the story of Eunice. Now, if you're not familiar with Eunice, I'm excited to introduce you to her. But we have an incredible picture and testimony of not just a godly woman, uh, but uh, faithfulness in mothering. And again, I hope this serves as an encouragement uh, towards you ladies that are here today. Mothers-to-be, those in the midst of mothering, those who have and continue to serve as mothers. And so uh, I want to start by talking about that which we know about Eunice, which isn't that much, but boy, is it powerful. In 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last uh, pastoral epistle, his last writing, his last letter to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy. So this is just before Paul is executed, and, uh, and he knows that. And so he, he inks one last letter to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, uh, who is beloved to him. And right out of the gate in this letter, so again, Paul's swan song, his deathbed letter to Timothy, he points out something in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And he's going to point out that Timothy has something very unique and special about him. It's something you can just tell Paul must have been meditating on and thinking about, how can I encourage Timothy, my spiritual son, who by the time Timothy receives this, he's in his probably early 40s, and he began, he started traveling with Paul at about 16-ish, so he's been with Paul 25 years, and Paul knows him well, a spiritual son in the faith, and he wants to encourage him. And he decides to point to the sincerity of his faith. And look how he does it in chapter 1, verse uh, 5. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul first talks about the sincerity of his faith, and it's not just the sincerity of his faith, but the sincerity of the faith that was first seen, exhibited, exuded in his grandma, Lois, and then his mother, Eunice. So the first thing we know about Eunice is she's a woman who has a sincere faith. That word sincere is uh, anupokritos, which is to say, sounds like hypocrite. It is. It's ah, hypocrite. It's the opposite of a hypocrite. And that day, hypocrite was the word, or hypocritos was the word for play acting. You would hold the mask up, you know, that had the mood of the character you were playing, and, and that's what you would use in the theater. Um, and uh, what, what the, Paul is saying is there's no play acting when it comes to Lois and Eunice's faith. That there's a sincerity, there's an authenticity about them. Like what you see is what you get. My grandfather used to tell me that character is who you are when no one's looking. Well, who is Eunice and Lois when no one's looking? They're the same person in private that they are in public. There's no play. It's not a show. 
It's not just a mask of religiosity. It's a sincere love of the Lord. It's a sincere faith, a trust, a, a dependence upon the Lord Jesus. And, of course, I love the fact that Paul is writing that to the son and the grandson. Like, if anyone would know whether or not that's true, right, we can't fool our kids. And so he's saying, Timothy, there's something so special in you that was first in your grandmother and then in your mother, and now it's in you. And by the way, one reason it's likely in you is because it was first in them. And so the first thing we know about Eunice is she has this authentic, sincere faith. She's the same person in the light and in the dark, in public and in private. And this is part of the godly legacy and heritage of Timothy. Now, something else we know about her, probably the last kind of uh, detail, narrative, uh, historical detail, comes from Acts 16. There's this portion of scripture where Paul's on a second missionary journey. He's going through Lystra for, I think, the third time. And that's where Timothy lives. That's where he lives with Eunice and his father. And, um, and Paul's going through, Timothy's about 16 years old, and this is when Paul's actually going to invite Timothy, a young Christ follower, to join him on his missionary journeys, which, are, which is going to involve intense persecution and suffering for the sake of the gospel. 16-year-old, this is, this is a high bar. And in that chapter, it makes a note of something twice. Check this out, Acts 16, verses 1 and following. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. Disciple is a follower and learner, a Christ follower named Timothy. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. We know that that's Eunice. But his father was a Greek. All we see there is that it doesn't, he's not connected. It doesn't seem like he's a proselyte. doesn't seem like he's a believing Greek. He's just a Greek. He's a non-Jew, non-believer. Matter of fact, he was talking about Timothy. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to temp- Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. In other words, the dad had not circumcised him. The dad didn't care to participate in the religious uh, traditions of the Jewish culture, wasn't interested. Uh, spiritually speaking, he's a little bit uh, absent. He's there physically, but he's just not uh, pictured in any way or given in any way as a godly man. We have a picture here of Eunice being a believing Jew raising this child apart from the spiritual nourishment of a godly father, Greek father. Maybe he was a good man. We don't really know anything about him, but he wasn't uh, one who was um, uh, loving Jesus and pushing Timothy towards Jesus. And yet Timothy, his very name, Timotheos, is to honor God. You get a picture here, some speculation, that Eunice had a husband, didn't care about the things of God, but she deeply did. Yep, first you have a picture of 1 Corinthians 7 right there. You have a picture of the believing spouse who doesn't leave her husband, but trusts that God will use her to sanctify the children, and even possibly her husband. And so she stays there. She, uh, even though the father can have his flesh, he's not going to sanctify him. That's the dad's deal. She can't do anything about it. She calls him Timothy. You're to honor God. So a picture of 1 Corinthians 7 faithfully played out. She's going to love and pour into. She's saying, you can have his flesh. I want his heart. And uh, by the way, we don't know why she married this guy. I no idea what that was. Maybe it was a season of her own life where she was drifting or, or wandering from the things of God. But we know by the time she has Timothy that she is locked in, that she loves Christ with a sincere faith. And she names this boy to honor God, and her endeavor is just to do that. I'm going to show you. So we have a, a woman of sincere faith in a home where dad is not spiritually 
present. And back to 2 Timothy, there's a few other verses that give us an incredible. So what is a woman of sincere faith? What does that sincere faith look like in action? What does it look like in the role of mother? All right, and again, this is meant to encourage you ladies, hopefully inspire you towards the unbelievably critical and significant role God has given you as mothers. Well, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 12 and following, this is right about the portion of chapter 3, which we usually quit preaching, okay? And then we skip about two, three verses, and then we pick it back up. Well, these three verses are massive right here. All right, 2, uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, that's just, that's a fact. If you desire to follow Christ, in a, uh, which is going to be countercultural in every generation, there's going to be some persecution with that. And it says, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Any argument with that? Is our world growing closer to Christ's likeness in its natural ascent? Or is it um, going the way of greater and greater evil and rebellion in its natural descent? Anybody? It's the latter. Yeah, uh, that's not a hard one. You, you we're inundated with a culture that is in active rebellion against God. It's really a culture that hates God. Okay, so that's not meant to be a surprise. Uh, it's going to go bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Okay, well, check it out. Verse 13. Again, Paul, or verse 14, Paul writing to his spiritual son in faith. But as for you, so contrary to that, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul is going to appeal to some things in Timothy. He's going to appeal to Timothy to remember. Here's Timothy in his 40s pastoring at this point the church in Ephesus after being on the missionary journeys with Paul and he's saying hey Timothy I want you to continue on in the faith and here's what I want you to remember remember the sincerity of faith you remember what a sincere faith looks like because it's in you and it was first in your mom and then it fleshed itself out very intentionally in some ways from your childhood on and so let me give you uh, four or five things here ladies the first is this that word but in verse 14 which your bible might say however is this very idea that the culture is, is rapidly moving away from God. It's in a, uh, a hot rebellion towards the things of God. Uh, the, the culture will pull you towards every kind of idolatry, which is to love and worship anything and everything over and above the only one worthy of our ultimate love and worship. Who is God? And Paul says to Timothy, hey, there's a but. You were from your earliest days taught and shown something altogether different. First, the, the first thing which I think is, is in there for you moms is that you would endeavor to do something counter-cultural in your home with your child. It, in other words, it's not gonna be accidental. We're not just gonna kinda hope that our kid in the world doesn't go of the way of the world. But there's something intentional here. But you, were taught, were shown, learned something different. Started with this however, this but. There's a moment where a mom who, no one's gonna spend more time nurturing the heart of a child than the mom. The dad is uh, called to set the temperature in the house and make it a spiritual home. We're gonna get to that in a few weeks in our study. But no one will, no one will just spend the hourage 
and the time with that child nurturing its heart like mama. Nobody. And there must be a, a woman endeavoring by way of consecration to literally say, it's what we saw this morning in our first service in our baby dedications. We are, we are endeavoring that these children grow to love you. We can't make them love you. First Corinthians 3, we can plant and we can water, but God's going to have to grow. But we want nothing more than to mark the moment with the, this child entering our home, giving us as a stewardship of God. Our endeavor is that this child love Christ. That's first. Paul says, the world's going from bad to worse, but there's something different that began when you were a child. You had a mother who intentionally raised you in a counter-cultural way. So that's where it starts. And then what did that look like? Well, he says here, I, I love these two verses. He says, from childhood in verse 15, the word for that uh, in Greek is the word for infant or baby. And he says, from the time you were an infant, that's what he's saying, literally. Don't think of an eight-year-old, think of an infant. He says, from the time of your infancy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. I love the choice of the words. This is specific and intentional. Understand that Paul used acquainting babies uh, with the sacred writings for a reason. You can't really teach uh, the things of God to your babe. You may want to. You may pontificate before them uh, as they drool over their pacifier about all of the systematic theology you've learned, but man, it ain't really being understood. They just, they can't cognitively reason what they can't cognitively reason. And yet Paul says, from the time Timothy was a baby, from the time you were a babe, your mom acquainted you. That's about as far as you can go in the early stages. You can acquaint them with, you can familiarize yourself, you can make them at home with the sacred writings of God's word. And that's what the sacred writings were to them. That's a, 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 it's called a hupax legomena, the only time in all of scripture that that phrase is used. That's the Old Testament scrolls. And so in their home, those were known as the sacred writings. Do your children you know, in your home know, by the way, what's the most sacred writings to your family? Timothy did. He was acquainted from the time he was a babe. Now, any of you guys that are in the season of raising the little biddies, I'm at the tail end of, of with, my, with uh, Catherine and I's fifth son, uh, who's, who's uh, almost four. And, uh, and it's fun to see this, but it, when, you, when, you, when you put in your time as the reader, which my wife has put in far more time than I, and, uh, and, and when it's my turn and, and when I do that, I, there are some nights I'm just fired up to get up there and just settle into it and read and sing and pray, just kind of have some good connection. There are other times I'm exhausted. And, and you know what it is if you've been there and you get up there and you, I tell little Mac, all right, pick out your book. And at this point, being five sons deep, we, we have a lot of books. I mean, there's like three sections of his little nursery library, okay, his little room. And I mean, there's just books upon books. And man, it's amazing. He, he just goes right to the longest book in the entire room. <laughs> I mean, boom, beeline, like he knows right where it is. I'm like, how? Pulls that baby out. Here it is. He's really into dinosaurs right now. His book on the Bronchiosaurus, which is like as thick as an in Britannica. Okay, and so, you know, you get in there and you, and you open this thing and you start reading and, I mean, whew, you're so tired. We, we still got singing and talking and praying and we're, and we're in the first quarter here. And so you do what every parent has done. We're, we're all guilty of the same thing. At some point, 
You know as well as I do, you start grabbing three, four, six, eight pages at a time. And, and you, you just, you turn, turn and, and you create a little diversion. Is that your crayon? And okay, here we go. And man, you skip two chapters. God, do it all the time. Now, it works in the earliest days. But you know what happens is they, begin, is they get familiar. You know what happens? Here's how you know they're familiar. At some point, you just pulled a fast one and you thought you got away with it. And you're reading and all of a sudden, that child will stop you in your tracks. And the child will turn and rebuke you to your face, no daddy, we skipped the T-Rex. That's where he goes to him. The rest of the story is based, and he's just furiously turning backwards. And you're going, oh no, it's become too familiar. Uh, I just get this sense in Timothy's home of Eunice familiarizing and pouring over him with the sacred writings that when, when she was tired, and when she tried to skip the last 10 years of Abe's life, Timothy's calling, him, calling her out. No, 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 mom. You forgot about where he, sacrificed, where he was called to sacrifice his son. You skipped it. And she's going back. I, I, I just want to say this. I don't think we'll ever understand how much the child can take in and understand and be affected by that, those hours spent familiarizing them, acquainting them with the sacred writings of God. And, and you know what? It's called out in the Bible. God breathed word. He said, Paul, writing to him, he carried along by the Holy Spirit. You call out publicly. She acquainted him as a babe. Ladies, that is a worthy endeavor. No one sees it. No one appreciates it, hardly. That child won't even thank you for it for a long time, but the Lord sees you. He's honored in that. Well, she, from the earliest days, acquaints him with the scriptures. And then, I love it, it says, uh, continue on in what you have learned. So there's this progression. They have learned is the idea of become intimate with. Um, it's moving from familiarity to cognitive understanding. That This familiarizing becomes teaching. There's an ongoing conversation. This is Deuteronomy 6 played out in the home. This is as the child gets older, uh, mom, from the time they get up uh, to the time they go down. There's a spiritual conversation happening. It's great to ignite that with God's word in the morning. A, a family devotion can be uh, a great asset to starting with a scripture and getting our thoughts. But it's a, it's, a, it's a lifetime conversation that throughout the child's youth, they are coming to understand those things which they've been familiarized to. So all of a sudden, that story of Abe being called to sacrifice, like, now there's a Why? What's God doing? And why didn't Abraham do it? And why is there a ram in the thicket? And all of a sudden there's gospel conversation springing forth in the home. The child's moving from being familiarized with to learning. And so for the mothers, there's, there's having the sincere faith that takes action. And the action starts with marking a moment. This child is for the Lord. It's gonna be countercultural here. Familiarizing themselves early with the scriptures and then Educating them, teaching, talking, constantly interpreting, uh, applying the text so that they might understand here what God's word says here. And that what's here might slowly move down in their heart. Now that's the fourth thing. The fourth thing Paul says, in, in knowing from whom you learned it. Now that's a big one. By the way, that's a plural pronoun. You know, you know who Paul's talking about? From your earliest days, there was at least two. You learned it from your mama and your grandmama. 
And let me, let me tell you, this is, this is absolutely critical. You can familiarize all you want, and you can teach all you want, but if you're not going to live it out before your children, then what would be the word for you? Word be hypocrite. By the way, if anyone knows if you're a hypocrite, it is for sure your kids. Paul says, that's what was so unique about Eunice. Ah, hypocritos. She was the opposite. If nothing else, it was sincere. They, says Timothy, she familiarized you, she taught you, but she modeled it. She lived out the authenticity of her faith right before you. That's the greatest gift she gave you. There was an honest pursuit of Christ. I'm sure it came with tons of failure and sin and confession and repentance and forgiveness because that's what it is to authentically follow Christ. She bathed them in the sacred writing. She taught them as their meaning, and then she lived it out in a dynamic drama that Timothy got to witness firsthand. Her and grandma. Oh, let me say something to grandmas. Got to have you. Grandmas, grandpas, got to have you. I know, the, I know the sayings, you know, that grandparenting is the reward for surviving parenting. I get it. Or for not killing your kids. I think it's either. Maybe it's both. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I hope it happens. But let me say this. Uh, as fun as it is, and I, it's just, it's like part of, you know, how the things work in this world. I know you get to take them, and you get to go, and you get to feed them ice cream, and keep them up late, and get them all massively sugar hot and spoiled, and then give them back to us. I get it. If you play, everybody plays the game, okay? Sure, we will do the same. Uh, nothing necessarily wrong with that, but make sure that you're using the ice cream in the late nights to continue on in the narrative of growing them up in the gospel. I love the, t the, the amount of hours you get with those children as a grandparent. Now you are much godlier than we. Now you, you have learned from the mistakes that we are still making. You've seen God's faithfulness for an entire another generation, and we need the children to be familiarized with God's word through you, to learn it from you, and to see it in you. Don't retire away from the action. Get, get back in there. Come right to where the fighting is the fiercest, where the culture is going after the souls of those children, and you're walking with them hand in hand. We need grandmas and grandpas in the trenches discipling the next generation. It's a plural pronoun. You saw it in mom, you saw it in grandma. Neither one were willing to be absentee. They modeled it out of the quantity of hours that you get to spend with those children and those grandchildren will bubble up the quality of spiritual character and conversations that center around the gospel, that orient their minds and hearts towards Christ. And so, uh, fifthly, I think I'm on five, what number are we on? I should've written it down, all right. We've done several and here's another. Um, it says right here, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. All right, this is one of my favorite, this is mysterious. So I need to tell you something. Moms and dads, and by the way, you may have a wayward child. You may have a child that wants nothing to do with you. Let me say this. None of us have ever endeavored perfectly in, in child rearing. It's, it's one of our greatest acts of worship that we endeavor towards, loving our children in the Lord, pointing them towards the Lord, walking out of sincere faith. But only God can save them. Only he can illumine them to the truth of Christ. We want to point constantly from the familiarity as a babe to the training as a a child and a young man or woman, all the way to when they're walking in life and we continue the dialogue that Christ is Lord and he is worthy and the tomb is empty and there's life in him. And we, and we hope they can't deny that which they see is true in us. But amidst all of our failure, by the way, 
amidst how great we do, we can't bring him to salvation against our failure, God can still bring him to salvation. Everybody needs to take a deep breath and understand that only the Lord can get a hold of your kid's heart. Only the Lord, which by the way will bring you to your knees as a parent. I can't get it just right. There's no formula where if I, if I plug it in just right, my child pops out as a spiritual giant. It just doesn't work that way. There's probably gonna have to be some breaking and, and I, think about your own testimony. What had to happen in your life? Well, uh, we always want no pain for our children. We love them or you know, we hope God does it maybe differently. But hey, only God can turn. Timothy at some point came to firmly believe those things which had been planted into his mind and heart by Eunice. But it was a work of God that broke his heart and that truth came in and he was a born again new creation in Christ. Work of God. It's a, it's a mysterious thing and we plant and we water, but God brings the growth. So we pray, the, the, the fifth one is to pray. Pray for that moment where the Lord grabs hold of your child's affections, where Christ becomes preeminent in your child's life. Pray towards it. We can't produce it, we must pray for it. We familiarize and we teach and we live it out and we pray that their faith becomes their own. Um, you know, for me, I, I was thinking about when did that actually happen in my life? And, and it's just kind of the season. It was really in high school, and it certainly continued in college, when I was a professing believer. It was still kind of mama's faith. But it was, I, was in that, I was on that shaky ground where, is this going to be my faith or not? And, and, and what it was for me, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a, it wasn't a moment as much as a season, but what it was was there were moments when I was called to account, even publicly, where I was persecuted or made fun of, by friends, by trying to be cool, whatever. There were moments where I, I could either stand for Christ or I could run, you know, to save face or whatever it may be. There were these moments, and in those moments, there's, there's certain things that kind of hold you up. One of them, a, a huge one, a, a, an undergirding rock of foundation that my faith stood on was the sincerity of my mother's faith, all that had been poured into me, that in those moments, there was something in me, and when I got squeezed, what came out. And once Christ begins to come out, now, now there's an identity in him that's anchored. Now something gets forged. Now, something, now maturity begins. And the Lord got a hold of me, as he often does, through the testing of our faith. And so we're putting as much in there so that when the testing and the squeezing comes, there's Christ formed in and through our children. It's not a perfect pattern of prescription, but that's the, that's the endeavor. Um, the last one here it says is, Paul says, continue on in. Do you see that? Continue in the things that you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom, so you saw it, that you learned it from childhood. Okay, continue on. There's this thing that a mother must do at some point, just as we physically have got to raise those children and then get them out of the house. And hear me say that, you need to get them out of your house. Okay, they are not to eternally live in your basement. All right, at some point, they gotta go. Uh, there's a natural progression that's good in our societal order. They, we raise them to, uh, to the arrows in the hands of a warrior to, to fire them off. They gotta go, 
ready or not. Our goal is to make them ready. Our, that's our stewardship, but they got to go. Well, spiritually, at some point, they've got to stand on their own two feet. They've got to be able to continue on that faith which God has formed in them, which has been your great joy to endeavor towards, and you got to be willing, from, from all the mothering and the nurturing and the everything, you've got to be willing to go from here to here. And you've got to be willing to let them go. What a moment in Acts 16 it must have been when Paul came to Eunice's door. Your son is highly spoken of by the brothers in town. He's spoken of because of his sincere faith. He's spoken of because of his spiritual character. Hey, I know he's young, but I think it's time for a godly man to take him and grow him. And I think he needs to suffer because I think what's in him will bear the refiner's fire and God will produce gold. Will you send him with me? Wow, I shudder even thinking about this. Like what you've always dreamed of but never really wanted. I mean, there it is, like what's she gonna let go? This is Paul who's getting intensely beaten. He was already beaten once in their city and has come back. He's day to day on whether he's gonna survive. And he says, your son seems to be a, a young Christ follower whose faith is authentic. Will you let him go? Gosh. And she's got him like this. I bet that was an awesome last hug right there. And he goes. And don't you know, she retired to that prayer closet in that room full of all the sacred writing that she acquainted him with. And she praised God and she prayed for him that his life would go on to do great things for the kingdom of God. That was the entire endeavor. She endeavored well. Uh, you know, I, I'll tell you this. I, I just reflected on my life in the context, looking through this. I, I, can't, I, just, I can't help but re, I, I can really relate to Timothy on some things. Interestingly enough, I had a dad who had been considered a Greek, not particularly interested in the religious traditions of the Christian faith early on. I think he got serious about his faith near the end of his life, a good man, not, not with Christ at the center of his life, but I had a Jewish mother who was a believing Jew. And uh, I thought about, you know, this, this pattern I see in Eunice, it's remarkably striking to my testimony. That, that in my earliest days, which were mom's earliest days as a believer, <laughs> she familiarized me with the things of God. That's what she did. Um, she read the story. She took me to church. She introduced me to godly men who had become great heroes of the faith to me. And she familiarized and she taught. And more than anything, my mom lived it out. If I got nothing, I got a picture of a sincere faith in my mom. I know what it is to authentically love Jesus to love God and love others because of your love for Jesus. She's not a perfect woman, but man, is her face sincere. Everybody that knows her would say that. And uh, I got a mom who um, spent long hours and still does on her knees for me. She, she had to turn me over to God to teach me the things that she couldn't or that I wouldn't hear from her. She had to trust God with me through those seasons of high school and college. I even think back to 
all the foolishness I was engaged in. Where was mom? Praying <laughs> that God would get a hold of me. Uh, and I remember when I came to her after my sophomore year, most of my friends were kind of had an idea of what they wanted to do in life vocationally. I just had no idea. Be encouraged. Uh, most of them, man, they were getting internships in the business world or academia or the, or the classroom or clerking for, I mean, they were just kind of, there's these great just pathways of success being carved out. All, and I'm just looking around going, I don't have a clue. And mom didn't seem to be overwhelmed by that. And I remember saying, hey, mom, I think I, uh, I want to play baseball with this group that, that uh, oversees that it's a part of a ministry. It uses baseball, take the gospel overseas. And I remember my mom's eyes going, wait, what? Where are you going to go? And she had a few motherly questions. Is, is y'all going to have food and shelter? And how many, what's the survival rate? I mean, she has the normal mother. But you know what she did? In, in light of not knowing anything, she ultimately goes, wait a minute. Okay, is this what the Lord's leading you to do? Okay, you follow God. Did my life make sense to any of my friends or friends, family? No, not really. Uh, the next year, buddies are growing down their paths that they're going down. I worked at a summer camp to share the gospel with kids. I was feeling the Lord just igniting my heart with a desire to share the gospel. Then I went off to Kansas City, felt the Lord leading me to go in youth ministry with unknown people in an unknown land. And you know what she did? If that's where the Lord's leading you, then go. Uh, to go study under a pastor in Texas, to start a nonprofit, to plant a church, every single my, my mom has never done anything except look at me, I can see going through her eyes, help him Lord, and then she's just right here. She lets me go. She prays, she labors in prayer. She trusts the Lord, and she lets go. Um, I wanna tell you something, moms. Tens of thousands of hours of unnoticed, unappreciated, unvalued, critical, eternally significant endeavoring is what you're called to. And the world will largely not acknowledge you. But I want you to know that God sees every minute of it. And I want you to know the throngs of angels, the great cloud of witnesses, celebrate your faithfulness and the quietness of those late nights with the sick child that can't sleep. They celebrate. They see the endeavor. You're running the race that he's given you to run. I'm gonna tell you, it's a worthy, it's a noble race. And I want you to know that we see you as children and as husbands. As children, we arise, call you blessed. As husbands, we praise you. Father, may we be a, a spiritual body uh, filled with faithful mothers, Lord, the tireless, thankless job, the most tireless, most thankless, most significant job on this earth. And uh, there are so many women here today that are tired 
and feeling um, unknown, unseen, unvalued, and will you please fill their sails with a special sense of your presence and your joy and your hope. Remind them of the eternal significance of that which they are endeavoring towards. Let us as children honor our mothers. Let us as husbands honor our wives. And let us as the body of Christ come together to celebrate and to encourage this great Christ-exalting work. Thank you, thank you for Eunice and her simple example. She, she's become a, a biblical hero, but in her day, she didn't know that. She was just faithfully pursuing you, Lord Jesus. And so we do it again in this day and ask that you be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.